This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives on Ocean Science Lecture Series. My name is Harry Helling. I'm the executive director here at the Birch Aquarium at Scripps. It is my great pleasure this evening to introduce our speakers, Dr. Richard Norris and Alex Hankstifer. Dick is a professor of geosciences here at Scripps, and the Geologic Collections head curator. Dick's research deals with the diversification of life rules that govern macroevolution and the evolutionary dynamics of open ocean plankton. He also has an extensive research program on climate evolution during periods of past warm climates. Dick was an undergraduate in earth sciences at UC Santa Cruz, obtained a master's of science degree at University of Arizona, Tucson, and his PhD at Harvard University in geology. In between these academic programs, he worked on the Condor Recovery Project, excuse me, for the state of California and as director of the Natural Reserve Systems Granite Mountain Reserve for the University of California. And following graduate training, he was a research scientist at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution until he became a professor here at UCSD in 2002. Tonight we have two speakers. The second one is Alex Hankstifer, who is the Geologic Collections Manager. She received her BA from Roger Williams University in Environmental Chemistry and Biology with a minor in Philosophy. She received her master's from Scripps Institution of Oceanography with a focus on methane hydrate biogeochemistry. She was hired in June 2009 to happily manage the geologic collection. She is now an X-ray technician operating both the Geotech X-ray Imaging Core Scanner and the Avitech XRF Core Scanner and support of the multidisciplinary research projects with students, postdocs, and researchers. Alex was, an instru- was instrumental in the development of the Oddities exhibit that we have here to our left, and we invite you to see her many contributions to the exhibition, including things like scale model 3D printed representations of microfossils. Please join me in welcoming Dick and Alex for their talk entitled Archives of the Geologic Collections from Stone Bowls to Unsuspected Superheroes. Welcome. <laughs> Well, thank you all for coming, and uh, we're going to be doing sort of a duo act here. We, we haven't really, we practiced, okay, I will tell you that. Uh, so Alex and I are going to be sharing this talk, and I'm going to lead off, uh, but then you'll see quite a bit of Alex too, so, and we'll both take questions afterwards. Um, so I wanted to say just a little bit about this. So what we're going to do first is to tell you a little bit about why we happen to be, you know, standing up in front of you. You know, how do we get involved in collections in the first place? And then something about the nature of the geological collections, because it's more than just rocks uh, and mud. It is that, okay? But we have a much more uh, involved kind of thing to talk about. So first, a little bit of history. Um, I've been involved in collections before I was actually born, of all things. Uh, that's my father up there, uh, and he was an ichthyologist, uh, a graduate student under Carl Hubbs uh, in the fish collection here at Scripps. 
Um, and then my mom uh, worked with Francis Haxo uh, on marine algal pigments. Uh, and they met, as it turns out, just down the hall from my present uh, professorial office. <laughs> now, the, the amazing fish there, this was uh, their wedding engagement uh, photo uh, <laughs> that appeared in the La Jolla, uh, in the Union uh, Tribune, okay? And, uh, and, the, uh, and this was actually a, a party that was held at the monk's house, of all things. So this was like, goes round and round and round, right? Um, and the big fish came out of the fish collection. Uh, Carl Hubbs was apparently unaware of its theft uh, by Sam Hinton. <laughs> uh, but then, uh, but then, when he found out that the the fish was missing, he came and retrieved it, which was just as well because then my family did not have to lug it around uh, ever since. And we were our collectors, so we would still have it if we if it hadn't been taken back. Um, okay, so then moving on a little bit, this is my mom with Congo. Congo was, a, as you can see, a baby gorilla. Uh, we took care of Congo when I was just about the same age as the gorilla. <laughs> uh, and uh, and uh, my mom you know, speaks about having Congo on one hip and me on the other. <laughs> okay. uh, so anyway, more collections-related stuff. Uh, and then, because I, my father was a, he, he was many kinds of ologist. He worked in herpetology, ichthyology, marine mammalogy, and so forth. But back in his lizard days, uh, we would take these trips all over the American West in our, our old Dodge uh, station wagon there. There's me in the pink shorts, okay? Uh, and my sisters playing on White Sands uh, uh, dune fields, okay, in New Mexico. Uh, and we were there to study, uh, well, my father was there to study Holbrookia, which is this little lizard that uh, has amazing color matching to the very white sand dunes. But it turns out they're not perfect. Uh, so they're good enough that the, the snakes that eat them can't find them, but they're not actually perfect mimics. All right, so then finally, I when I was sort of gestated out into the scientific uh, you know, world, uh, here I am on a drill ship off of uh, Newfoundland. I've been studying cores my entire career, and I'm here with that green band you can see is the ejecta from the impact structure that uh, was associated with the extinction of the dinosaurs. Um, and so when I was hired to Scripps, I was hired actually without anyone saying anything about collections. But then when I turned up, they said, oh, by the way, would you like to be curator? And so here I am. And so now I'm going to turn it over to Alex. She's going to tell you about herself uh, in the same light. Awesome, great. Well, thank you, Dick. Um, and it's great to have everybody here tonight. So my path to the geological collections is a bit more winding. Uh, so I grew up just outside of Philadelphia. And when most people think Philadelphia, they don't normally think nature. But for me growing up, we spent just all the time we could outside. Actually, our parents didn't really let us stay inside very much whatsoever. Uh, so the upper left photo is me and my older sister out at Ridley Creek State Park. And so we spent um, all of our free time trying to get on top of rocks and up into trees. Uh, down in the lower left is my small yet very supportive family. So my mom and dad and me looking, admiring at my sister. Um, so growing up in Philly, when you go on vacation, at least a few of them will tend to be down to the Jersey Shore. So I have evidence of this at a very early age in the upper right photo of me hunched under a, um, a boat uh, in Wildwood, New Jersey. So coming from a landlocked area growing up, I really loved being at the coast. And so my love of the ocean started pretty early on. Um, I, growing up, I didn't know exactly what part of the ocean I wanted to, to work with. Um, 
But one thing that's fairly evident growing up is that me and my sister loved to bury my dad in the sand, which he would um, always um, regret pretty much immediately upon letting us do that. Um, so although I loved science and math um, growing up, they were my two favorite subjects, I was also, also very passionate about art. So when applying to colleges, I actually was thinking about applying to, um, to art school. Um, my love of the ocean, ocean ultimately won out, but I did spend many a late night up finishing an art project during high school. Uh, so for my undergraduate degree, I ended up going to Roger Williams University. It's a beautiful, small liberal arts school in Bristol, Rhode Island, which is the top photo on the right. Um, what I really loved about this school, too, is we had access to small boats. So we were able to go out on the bay and collect water and sediment samples. Um, and so I started out actually in marine biology, but as I got through um, the more advanced coursework, I decided to actually, that I, I was really enjoying the chemistry side of life a little bit more. So that's when I switched my major to environmental chemistry and biology. Um, and on the left, you can see a photo of me with my budding love of inorganic chemistry of all things. Um, so in college, I jumped on every opportunity outside of school as well. Uh, so I ended up applying for and landing an internship in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Um, and so I worked on various projects there, including um, extracting DNA uh, from bacteria to figure out what was contaminating waterways in Rhode Island, to uh, determining the success rate of um, seeding farm-raised scallops to help boost wild, um, wild scallop populations um, in Woods Hole. Uh, and so for me, the more diverse, the better. I really wanted to take time to figure out what I really liked and also what I really didn't like. So nowadays, I really encourage students to jump on opportunities to kind of figure that out along the way. Um, so when you're in Woods Hole, it's a great small town, but you tend to become a townie pretty quickly. So one day, I was actually taking a Pilates class, and one of the folks I knew there um, asked me what I was doing upon graduation the following December. Um, and that person turned out to be Dr. Chris Reddy from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. And right there, he offered me a job working in his lab. So there I ended up working on um, extracting organic contaminants from whale blubber, so a very interesting project. Um, so that was not my cup of tea, but what I did learn about there were hydrothermal vents and methane seeps. And these are really amazing systems that are very extreme at the bottom of the ocean, and they're this intricate mix of geology, biology, and chemistry, and it really brought together all the things that I loved about the ocean and, and that I had learned thus far. So when I was applying to graduate school, I decided to apply to work with one of these systems. So upon coming to Scripps for my master's degree, um, I ended up being um, put on a project to investigate methane seeps and namely hydrates. So one of the ways that you can access these methane-bearing sediments is to take sediment cores. So the photo on the left is actually a set of sediment cores from the Gulf of Mexico that I worked on a lot um, during my master's degree. Um, so another way to take sediment cores, or excuse me, to take samples of this methane-bearing mud is to use submersibles. So I was lucky enough in my um, graduate studies to go down in the manned submersible Alvin twice, even as deep as 4,500 meters, which was both personally and professionally very um, very life-changing. Um, so, so when I was wrapping up my work um, in the collect, um, excuse me, on, uh, on my master's degree, it turned out that the collections manager position was open. So I applied and was very happy to accept my position here now, managing the geological collections. So now I manage and get to oversee the day-to-day -day workings and goings-on in both our sediment core and dredge rock collection. And then I also help to facilitate our teaching collection. Um, but, and Dick's going to talk a little bit more about that in just a second. But to wrap up my introduction, um, when I'm not getting my 
hands dirty in the lab with mud or rocks, I'm generally out somewhere trying to get on top of a rock formation or a mountain. So geology has been in my veins from a very, very early start. Um, okay, so I'm going to throw it back over to Dick to talk a little bit more about the collections. Okay. So the geological collections consist of three major parts. Um, the first one is our core collection. We have something on the order of maybe 8,000 uh, cores from all over, uh, the, mostly the deep ocean, but as you'll see, also some shallow sea material as well. Um, and we also, so the core collection is all those tubes over there that you're looking down one of our hallways. Um, we have also cores that come out of other uh, kinds of archives too. So I'm holding in that picture a, a piece of a massive uh, brain coral. It was a coral about the size of a VW bug. Uh, and we drilled through it in order to get a climate archive because corals grow very much the way trees do. Uh, recording the ocean environment over hundreds of years. Um, we have also a big dredged rock collection. Uh, somewhere back in the, in the boxes there is the Ark, or so I'm told, Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of like that, 8,000 square foot building all full of boxes uh, that are in turn stuffed full of rocks that have been dredged off the bottom of the ocean. And these have been picked up with either grabs or using something called a dredge, which is basically a big chain bag uh, with some teeth on it, and you drag it along the bottom and it picks up whatever is down there. Um, so there's something on the order of 6,500 boxes uh, in our collection. It's amazing. Um, also representing pretty much all of the world's oceans. Uh, and then there's also the teaching collection. The teaching collection, of course, is used in not just university instruction, but any kind of, of instruction. Um, Sean Curran here, for example, is currently, he's a, a just recent graduate from uh, the geology program at Scripps. And he's uh, curating our, some of our rock collection, where we've been putting uh, barcodes and uh, information cards into the collection. Um, the other slide there shows the current state, uh, somewhat sad state, of the fossil collection, which is actually my, my duties. Uh, and it needs to be curated, so that's kind of coming up, along with more work on the mineral collection we have as well. And I mention that because if any of you are interested in being volunteers in our collection <laughs> uh, and helping curate, okay, we would love to have either your body uh, to help us do that uh, or uh, uh, you know, donations to keep uh, somebody like Sean uh, going in this whole effort uh, to make all of this stuff available electronically you know, to, to uh, people here at Scripps and elsewhere. All right, so now I'm going to give you the first sort of introduction to one of the four major parts of this talk, and this is expeditionary science. Uh, so, of course, the collections are fundamentally about scientists thinking up an idea. Uh, here's something I'd like to test. Designing an expedition to go and collect material that is suitable to answer that set of questions bringing that material back to Scripps, uh, and then you know, doing their studies, but then, of course, donating the material to the collection so that it's available for other people. Um, and so this is an example of expeditionary science uh, that is attempting to answer the question of whether reefs need to be eaten in order to grow. And that seems a little contradictory somehow. You really want to get eaten. But the point is, it's very much like uh, cows in a pasture. If the cows are not out there grazing the pasture, eventually it will get filled in with bushes, and that whole ecosystem will disappear. 
and so a similar thing may be going on. It's been hypothesized by ecologists going on on reefs that the, the reef fish are grazing essentially the algae off of the corals, allowing the corals to grow uh, very happily. So we decided to test this idea. And so here we are. This is my team. Uh, approaching this absolutely idyllic island, okay, in uh, Belize. This is called Caribou uh, Cay Research Station. It looks rather like Gilligan's Island <laughs> uh, without, well, I guess I, the professor was there, come to think of it. <laughs> um, but anyway, it has a research lab and bunks on it and boats and so forth for our use. And here we are approaching the, um, the boat with uh, our core pipes, okay, six meter long pieces of tubing that we were going to use by collecting cores uh, in the Belize Lagoon from the modern reef. Um, and this is the field team. Very strong characteristics on the whole. So the guy in the straw hat, that's Aaron O'Day. He's one of my colleagues from Smithsonian Tropical Research Institution in Panama. Uh, and Brigida is uh, next to him in the yellow hat. She's his uh, research assistant. The other three characters are sort of disreputable SIO types. Uh, so we have Nacho here, we have Katie Kramer, who is a postdoc with me, and Katie's husband, Chris. Uh, and we formed a dynamic duo to go out and core uh, the Belize Lagoon. And so here we are, this is what it looks like. Uh, the, the reefs are developed around these mangrove islands, uh, and we were out sort of, you know, scoping out exactly where to drop in the water with our scuba tanks uh, to collect cores from that modern reef system. Uh, and you can see our core pipes there in the foreground of the boat. So this is what it looks like. In the bottom, we put our pipe into the reef. Uh, we have, this is probably Chris actually, dropping uh, this big hammer, a slide hammer, to pound the core into the bottom of the reef. Pipe six meters long, so we could get in about five meters into the bottom. That's actually me there uh, with my scuba system on. This is just great fun, I have to tell you, okay? <laughs> It was, it's wonderful science, but man, you have to do science that you really enjoy, and this comes up to that standard. Um, so here we are, recovering one of our cores. There's with a lift bag, there's a diver over there, uh, and you can see the boat above. So we have these big, long pieces of uh, metal tubing all full of reef sediment. Uh, and then here we are, okay, back on Kerry Key. I, of course, am kissing a core. I have to admit a certain fondness for these things. Uh, but anyway, we were cutting up the six-meter cores into shorter pieces so that we could ship them back to Scripps, right? Uh, and so that's the field team. Here, here's Katie and I cutting uh, some of the cores lengthwise with one of our saws. Um, turns out, actually, that the university wasn't very happy with us for doing this because we got coral dust all over everything. But whatever. Uh, <laughs> We sort of put up with that. This is, a, this is what the core looks like, and you can see all these uh, pieces of coral in there. And I actually brought one of our cores, okay, in from this expedition. So all of the little round things in here are the cross-sections through pieces of branching coral. Uh, and the project that we did was to extract pieces of mud and coral, of course, from these cores uh, we have an idea uh, from, uh, okay, well, okay. We have uh, an idea that this sediment is older than that sediment. That's the core top up there. 
somewhat slumped now. Um, but anyway, we could date the corals here. We could date the corals there. We have the passage of time, right? So this is like, like, a, like a tape recorder or a time machine of sorts uh, that records the history of the reef. And by taking uh, samples out of this, we could study this question of whether the reefs need to be eaten in order to grow. And so we did that by... Um, by extracting fish teeth from the reef sediment. And so here we've got the teeth of various kinds of fish, these ones that look like little, little cups or spoons or something like that are the teeth of parrotfish. And parrotfish are famous uh, grazers on reef systems. And so what we found was that there's a very close correlation between the abundance of teeth of these parrotfish grazers uh, and the rate at which the reef was growing. The reef grows a lot faster when there's lots of fish on it. And so that was a nice conclusion, okay? It supported what the ecologists had been saying. It showed very definitively that you don't want to overfish the reef because that will actually kill the whole system uh, by allowing algae probably to overgrow the corals. Um, and so, more fish teeth, a faster-growing reef. And now I'm going to turn this over to Alex to tell you the next little vignette about our collections. All right, so um, I'm going to talk a little, bit, a little bit about how the collections support education. Um, so it's really important that students and teachers learn and teach respectively that scientific questions aren't answered simultaneously upon sample collection and that it's a path or a process that scientists take to get these answer, get answers and results. Um, and so I'm really excited tonight to highlight one of these uh, projects that the collections um, is supporting called Geopass. So Geopass is a National Science Foundation funded collaboration between California State University Bakersfield and Drs. Tony Rathburn and Chandranath Basak, uh, University of San Diego and Dr. Sarah Gray, and then myself and Dick here at Scripps. And so the goal of this project is to inspire underrepresented students to pursue um, careers in the geosciences, but then also to stay engaged in those, um, in those careers. Uh, so there's three years of funding for this project, which is great, and it started this summer. Um, so the, the goal here is to take undergraduate students and high school teachers out to sea to collect sediment, water, and rock samples. The students will then either um, analyze these samples in the classes they take or actually come here to Scripps to engage in internships in the Geological Collections Core Lab. Um, the students that engage in those internships will then ultimately present their research at a professional conference in, at the end of the third year of funding, and they may also actually end up being a co-author on one of these peer-reviewed journal articles. I'll talk a little bit more about the teachers coming up, but um, here in the photo on the left, these students are taking water samples from what's called a CTD sampler. So that stands for conductivity, temperature, and depth. So the CTD is a rosette of these Niskin bottles that can actually be, their lids can, are cocked open when the uh, CTD is deployed. So when it's being recovered up through the water column, scientists can determine when they want to close those bottles, capturing water from different depths within the ocean. The photo on the right is a very happy team of students who just got trained up on a winch. Um, the winch is in the foreground here, and it's got a very long cable that's used for deploying and recovering um, sampling devices that take uh, either ocean water or, in our case, mud and rocks. So here is a video. This is really awesome. So, so the students and the teachers on these cruises acted as scientists. So they were working alongside um, the, the boat's crew to actually recover these samples. 
So here we have students here on the taglines. They're about to recover a van, what's called a Van Veen grab I'll talk about. Um, and so this Van Veen grab is really massive. And it looks like it's a smooth recovery. But if these students don't do this right, that thing's like a wrecking ball. So not only could you lose your precious sample, you may lose one of your precious students as well. So this is a very well-coordinated system. Um, and these students were amazing. In terms of uh, crews that I've ever sailed with, these students and teachers by far were my, my favorite. Um, okay, so here we have students actually looking at a recovered uh, grab sampler. Um, they, this is when they can actually see, smell, and touch the mud. Um, and so what happens is, is this grab is literally taking a bite from the sea floor, preserving that very top sediment water interface. The photo on the right is actually showing inside the grab sampler. So this is where you actually see um, the sea floor area that was preserved. So another thing that we do is we take um, these short cores from what's called a multi-core. Um, the students on the left are actually getting ready to sample this tube of mud. But as you can see, there's a lot of water on top. So this is a pretty fun process. They actually move the tube onto this post. It's called an extruding post. The next step is to siphon all that water off without swallowing too much seawater. Um, and then the sediment is pushed up to the top of the tube. And then students are able to subsample the core slice by slice. So each one of these slices are then transferred to a labeled bag and then either refrigerated or frozen so they can be analyzed on shore. So this, what's really cool is the students are responsible for taking detailed notes about all of these samples out at sea. We, we throw them into the deep end of the pool, so to speak. Um, so here in the photo on the left, they're actually getting information like water depth and time the equipment is being deployed or recovered from the screens in the main lab to get information about the samples. They're out there on the deck interacting with the samples. Um, one of the main research objectives of this project is to look for a particular kind of marine microfossil called a foraminifera, or a foram for short. And the particular forams of interest on this research cruise are adapted to living on the seafloor, but they only like either rocks or coarse-grained sediments to attach to. So in the photo on the upper right, these students are actually looking at um, foram-encrusted rocks under the microscope. So in the bottom right photo, you can actually see a benthic foram, a bottom-dwelling benthic foram, encrusted on a rock here. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about a couple of the students in this slide and, and just the progress that they've already made over the course of the summer coming up, too. So in July, we welcomed a really awesome crew of teachers from Bakersfield and all around San Diego County. So for most of these teachers, it was their first time out to sea, but everybody did a really, really great job. And it was a really diverse group of, of different teachers. So as, as a part of their time here, they not only got to sail on the RV sprawl for a long day cruise, they also got to engage in a curriculum development workshop, which led off with a day of learning either free or very inexpensive lab techniques that they can then go and, and use in their own classrooms and labs. So for instance, on the upper left photo here is them learning how to actually wash and sieve these raw sediment samples to isolate the microfossils. They also then got to learn how to look for and identify some of these microfossils in microscopes. Um, down in the lower left are actually different um, foraminifera and isolated in that photo is a radiolarian, another kind of marine microfossil. Um, and then finally, they got to learn how to simulate how different bodies of water in the ocean behave using just things like a hair dryer and um, uh, different temperatures of water and food coloring. 
So the next step, after learning all of these new concepts and diving into a brand new experience like going out on a research cruise, they were then tasked with two days of developing curriculum modules. And so the idea here was to create modules based on different geosciences concepts. So the concepts were thrown out there by the PIs and the teachers self-selected and, and had time then to actually develop these modules here at Scripps, which is a pretty fun setting for them to get to work where, where they got to work here. Um, and so it was really cool to see is not only did they learn all these new concepts, engage in these new experiences, but they had to turn around in just a couple days and not sure that they only knew you know, these concepts that they learned, but now turn it into curriculum that they're now teaching, um, teaching in their classrooms this year. The ultimate goal is to, is to perfect these modules and then make them available for free for other educators across California. So here is actually one group who's, after just two days of working on these modules, presenting a completed module. So I want to highlight Brandon here. He's a pre-service teacher, undergraduate student at California State University Bakersfield. Um, and Brandon's really awesome. He's been a superstar both out at sea and in the lab and in this workshop. And I point him out here because when he first came, he was kind of not sure what he wanted to do with his degree. But after his experiences out to sea and in this workshop, he was telling me that he really can see himself going into a geosciences career path and maybe even one that takes him out to sea. So it's been really inspirational to see, um, see just the growth in these students. Um, another student I want to highlight is Emily. She's from um, USD. And she was, her fir very first cruise was in early June. And she, there she was a participant and was absolutely amazing. So at the, by the end of September, we brought her back as a student leader. So now she was responsible for teaching her peers how to take samples and take different types of oxygen measurements. Um, and so she was just really awesome. It was, again, so great to see her, pro her, her progress over only just a couple of months. And so that's why I really love engaging in this type of a, um, of a project. It really lets the students be at sea and in the lab geoscientists. It also gives them a sense that they're, they're, they're working towards something meaningful, and a lot of them leave with much higher confidence kind of going forward in their future. Um, so finally, I'm going to leave you with um, group photos from all three of our summer's cruises, and not to show you just all the fun we've had, but also to highlight that this is a small fraction um, of the number of people that this project has the potential to touch. So the material that's being taught, or excuse me, the material that's being created as a part of this project has the potential to be taught to thousands of students every year. So that's a lot of learning through education. Uh, for me, I had a very winding path to, the to a geosciences career, so it's really cool to kind of hook these students very early and get them more fully engaged in the geosciences and not be intimidated by it early on. So this is just one of the very many educational-type projects that we get the chance here to support. Um, okay, so I'm going to turn it back over to Dick now, and he's going to talk a little bit more about the serendipitous nature of how the collections are used. Okay, thanks. Helps. Yeah, so a good deal of science, of course, doesn't actually start off with that expeditionary mode. Or, I mean, it starts off that way, but there's this long lifetime that is available because we keep material like a library, you know, for a long period of time. And like a library, of course, you know, that's always accessible for people to go and learn new stuff. Uh, and it's also true for our mud and rocks, okay, very 
they don't look very fancy, but nonetheless it's this great archive of the history of our planet and therefore becomes really useful for people who maybe come sort of after the material has already been collected and think up a new reason for it. And so I call this serendipitous science. It's I have an idea. Uh, do you have the material in your collections? Okay, I can go and study that idea without having to go through all the rigmarole of developing a full expedition. And so I'm going to tell you a story about John Hildebrand. Some of you probably know him. He's a professor of geophysics at Scripps. Um, and John is, is famous, actually, for his studies of whale acoustics and figuring out sort of the, um, the impact, for example, of Navy uh, acoustic systems on marine mammal populations and also just studying these very enigmatic animals out in the ocean where they're hard to observe, but because they're making noise, we can figure out you know, who's where and what they're doing and so forth. And so here's a picture of John as a somewhat younger man, by the way, uh, with one of his harps. These are a set of electronic packages with a hydrophone attached to them for listening to whales. Now, John, uh, like many of us in the academic world, uh, has a second life. Um, and the second life for him, okay, that hidden kind of thing that he does, is archaeology. Uh, and so that's a picture of John there uh, with uh, dark sunglasses standing next to two archaeologists. Uh, Tom Levy is over on the other side. He's a, a professor of anthropology and archaeology uh, here at UCSD. Uh, and we were all at an expedition uh, in, in northern Israel just in August, this last August, uh, studying uh, Neolithic and Bronze Age cultures uh, in the coastal zone of Israel. Um, and John was doing geophysics there. But John's little story uh, starts up with these things. Um, many of you, if you've been around La Jolla for a long time, may recognize these. These are grinding bowls uh, that have been, in this case, picked up by SIO divers uh, from the head of the La Jolla Canyon. So just right out here, um, in relatively shallow water, uh, these things litter the bottom of the, uh, of the head of the canyon, right in La Jolla Cove. And a good question is like, well, what are they doing down there? Why are there so many of them in that particular location? How old are they is a natural question. You know, is it something where the Native Americans who made these things, this is some sort of like a ceremonial thing of dumping them in the water? Or were they in use many thousands of years ago when sea level was lower than it is today? That was kind of John's core question. Now, John approached this question by uh, noticing, of course, that the stone bowls are not just found in La Jolla Canyon, where you can see them on the bottom, but they are also periodically collected uh, during sand dredging operations. And this is for sand replenishment, uh, you know, restoring uh, La Jolla's beaches for tourism and so forth. And that's done by taking a big dredge ship uh, that has a, essentially a, like a vacuum cleaner on the end of it. And it slurps up sand from offshore, and then it uh, has a discharge land, uh, pipe that brings it onto the beach. It's discharged onto the beach, uh, sand replenishment, and then moved around to be sort of beach-like, okay, with tractors. 
Um, but in the process, of course, of dredging, these things also pick up archaeological materials. Uh, and so here's the discharge pipe area, the tractors, and then over there is a monitor, someone who is hired uh, to, to look for archaeology material that is brought up in the dredging operation. And so here's some examples of what has been found. And uh, John allowed me to, uh, to bring in some examples. So here's a stone bowl that's made out of a piece of the Del Mar formation. Um, this is uh, a bigger one, okay, a chunk of a, of a rather broad stone bowl. This is the carving platform in here or the grinding platform. This one's been broken in half. But uh, this would have been used with a mono like this, okay, to grind on the surface or to, to pound. Uh, and this particular stone is nicely polished from uh, that kind of use. Uh, and those came up in the dredge, by the way. So, so here's, the, here's the fundamental problem. When uh, 10,000 years ago, when we had big glaciers on the northern continents, sea level was about 120 meters lower than it is today. And that means that the whole area here in front of La Jolla uh, was exposed um, platform, uh, and sea level was out there by the nine-mile bank. Um, so when that was going on, when sea level was lower, rivers, of course, and streams uh, crossed the, the, um, the shelf area and deposited what are called fluvial sediments. So these are river deposits. And we had marsh sediments and intertidal sediments deposited there as well. Um, and then when the uh, ice sheets began to melt and sea level began to rise again, uh, first estuary lagoon sediments were laid down and eventually offshore sediments like we'd have today. And so the key question that John was trying to address is where do the stone bowls come from, okay? Are they present in the modern offshore sediments, suggesting that they've been dumped from above, okay, after sea level had risen? Uh, or are they present in these old sediments uh, from the time when sea level was much lower than it is today? Now, here's where the geological collections come into this little flavor, because Sandag, uh, which is the you know, Regional Association of Governments, uh, was out, of course, with a, a really cool system called a vibracoring system, and they were studying the offshore sand resources so that when they slurped up that sand, it would look okay on the beaches. They didn't care about anything else, okay? And they gave us these cores, and Alex and I kind of looked at each other, and I was like, oh, now what are we going to do with these things? You can see how long they are. They were kind of a mess. Uh, and we, I have to admit, we kind of ignored them for a while because we had all sorts of other curatorial tasks to do. Uh, and they sat in this building we called the doghouse until, <laughs> in the doghouse, uh, and they, they were in the doghouse until Scripps, uh, in all of its wisdom, decided to tear the doghouse down so they could put in a big electrical um, uh, switching system to keep the power from going off uh, to the institution. And so at that point, Alex and I had a decision to make. We had to do something with these cores. And so we got off of our dust. We hired some undergraduates, another use for any donations, by the way, for helping with this kind of stuff. Uh, and we turned them into that, okay, which was we put all these uh, tubes of sediment into these D-tubes, we called them, so they could be stored properly, and Alex is holding one of them. 
Now, when John Hildebrand heard about this, he says, aha, I know exactly what to do uh, with your serendipitous cores, because he could use these cores that had been taken, of course, before the dredging operation had taken place, to figure out the level at which the sand was being extracted you know, for the, uh, the dredging operation for sand replenishment. And therefore, he could date the cores themselves. And so here's, here, drum roll, okay, is the solution. So the, the vertical lines are the cores, all right? And they pass through sediments deposited in different parts of the sequence, okay, from the La Jolla uh, Cove area. And the red and the blue bars are where the stone bowls come from. And so what he could show is that they are principally coming out of lagoonal sediments. They are about eight to 10,000 years old. Uh, so they are not new. Uh, or relatively new. Uh, these things were used when sea level was a lot lower than it is today. Uh, and they were apparently just associated with this particular kind of lagoonal environment. We never find stone bowls like this in on-land archaeological settings, suggesting somehow that the stone bowls were being used to process material from the lagoon, maybe invertebrates pounding up you know, shells to get, extract the meat, uh, or perhaps grinding uh, seeds from some of the uh, coastal vegetation in the lagoons. But that's the solution, okay? And that came about through the fact that Alex and I, for whatever reason, we were a little mysterious about it ourselves, decided to save these sandbag cores that had been collected without any idea that they would ever be useful for archaeology. Uh, and that's fundamentally how all of our collection works. You know, it's all out there, available for researchers who have a good idea uh, and are, you know, able to test that idea without having to go to extraordinary lengths uh, to collect new material. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Alex to tell you about the fourth major aspect of the collections. Okay, great. So the last thing I want to highlight is uh, how we support outreach. So outreach can be the dozens of tours we give to students every year and the events we do with our donors. But tonight I want to focus on outreach to the community at large. Um, and so in particular, I want to talk about how we helped in the creation of the Oddities exhibit. Um, so the Oddities title is Oddities, Hidden Heroes of the Scripps Collections. So when Harry originally threw out this idea of a comic theme-based uh, new exhibit, I think my initial reaction was, uh-oh, <laughs> how are we going to pull this off? Um, so in terms of hidden heroes, I could see how the biology collections had plenty of specimens that could act as really amazing superheroes. But you know, here I am managing a collection of mud and rocks, and I was really quite nervous to figure out how are we going to fit in, and how are we going to highlight uh, geology. So that's why I like highlighting this uh, um, quote, science inspires imagination. So that's when Dick, myself, and the awesome team of creators up here at the aquarium really had to let science inspire imagination. Um, my love for art was very excited to be able to communicate science in a very artistic and, and simplistic way. Um, so I wanted to make sure that we got it right. Um, I also want to highlight that uh, this is a real honor to have the oceanographic collections uh, highlighted as well as the collection managers. So um, I wanted to highlight our fellow, my fellow um, partners in crime, so to speak, here at Scripps. So in the upper left is Lindsay Sala, the manager of the Pelagic Invertebrate Collections. Below her is Ben Frabel, the um, manager of our fish collection. And on the bottom left is Charlotte Seed, and she is our manager of our Benthic Invertebrate Collection. 
So to start, my artistic side said, well, you should just start drawing. So this is not really the best representation of my artistic skill, but it is what it is. <laughs> so my original idea was to contrast um, what Dick was talking about in expeditionary science, so near-shore vibracoring, to collect, um, geologically speaking anyway, a more recent um, time, time interval in our past. So say something like the agricultural revolution, which would be 2,500 years ago. And then contrast that with deep-sea ocean drilling where you're drilling deeper down into the seafloor, getting these deep time events. Um, also, like Dick mentioned, uh, 65 million years ago when the massive um, asteroid impacted Earth and killed all the dinosaurs. So you can see the dismay on the dinosaur's face. Uh, so this is a cool idea, uh, but the problem was is it wasn't specimen-based. So, you know, we were looking at this idea of contrasting, um, you know, time. Um, but what we did is we actually dove into our cores quite literally to highlight our marine microfossils. So, so this is a foram. I introduced these uh, pretty amazing little creatures earlier. Um, and so these guys, when they make their shells, they're actually making them out of components from the seawater. And so they're, they're, that makes them very excellent recorders uh, for the conditions when they were alive. But when they die, their shells rain down to the seafloor where they're preserved in the sediments. So in this idea of highlighting an adaptation or a superpower for this specimen, we decided to highlight a particular, micro, a particular foram that will coil its shell left when the seawater is cold and coil its shell right when it is warm water. Um, and so that's a really, really cool adaptation. So let me grab this. So the next thing we wanted to highlight was our sediment cores. So these sediment cores are showing sediments that have accumulated over time. So the most recently deposited sediments are at the top of the core, and further down you're going back in time. So when you look at these forams at different levels in the core, you can see how they're changing over time. So we wanted to highlight the superpower um, time travel. So that's what we were. That's that's where we started. Okay, so now I get a really cool opportunity to sh take you through how we actually develop the one of the final panels that you see in the collection tonight. So this was an original sketch drawn by Danny Beckwith here at the Birch Aquarium that focused on time travel. Um, this is highlighting that, that foram that coils in different directions. Um, and so the first thing that came very apparent was that we were super text limited on these comics. You know, we like to drone on and on as scientists about all the things we know and we want you to know, but we didn't have that opportunity in these comic panels. So um, we had two very talented creators here, Leah Gavador and um, excuse me, Leora Gavador and Lisa Gilfillan, who actually took the first shot at writing the story. Very, very brave people. Um, and so we, so this was a back and forth between myself and Dick and the Birch Aquarium, and they did a really great job of, of being creative and working with this. So the next step was to turn it into a, a panel, um, a template that was actually going to work. So here we toyed around with the idea, do we, we're going to focus on the foraminifera, the species um, and the specimen um, that, that we're looking at. So the next step was to see, okay, well, how is the image going to overlay? 
So this was the next step that then got tossed over to a very brave Tina Mao here at the Birch Aquarium to actually turn this into digital artwork. So I do not know the background of this. This is uh, exactly how she did it. I know there's a lot of Photoshop and filters applied, but I'm not the expert here. That's why it wasn't passed to me. Um, but this is really amazing. This is the first time we got to see it um, as an actual artistic uh, digitized comic panel. So again, now here, we're time travel with the forums. Um, and so now it was our last chance to really tweak uh, what, you know, what we wanted to communicate and see. Um, and so then we passed it on. The final pass was to um, uh, graphic designer here, Jordan Tomasek. Uh, they called it Jordanizing. <laughs> and so she came up with the final panel that you'll see actually in the oddities exhibit. So we were pretty blown away with how these panels actually came together. So we're, we have this really artistic and kind of more simplistic way of communicating to people, but it's a really complex fundamental story that we're, you know, that we're sharing with the public. Uh, the next step was to actually print these things out. Um, so the photo on the left, that's um, Robert Rad. He's one of our videographers here who also contributed to our exhibit. Um, but he's there for scale to show that these panels were actually larger than life. Um, and so, so the photo at the bottom here, um, so this was a, the next thing that the team had to tackle was how do we reimagine this exhibit space and turn it into basically a life-size comic book. So you feel like you're walking through the pages of a comic book. The other step was how are we going to display our, our, our specimens? Um, so the boxes here are meant to look like uh, boxes that um, action hero figures come in. Uh, so Kevin Stevens was responsible for the evolution of how these display cases came from concept to then completion in our exhibit. Uh, finally, the photo in the upper right, uh, that's Charlie Langset. He's uh, the senior exhibit personnel here who directed much of the work on this exhibit. Um, and so he's trying to show us how, how large these things are and where do we place these things on the wall. Um, and Charlie was really great to work with. We had a blast working with him and his team. And without their hard work and dedication, the exhibit you see today would not have, have come to fruition. So the final step was to figure out how do we get these marine microfossils? And the point is, is you shouldn't be able to see them because they're microscopic. Um, how do we bring these guys to life? And that's when we decided that we want to 3D print them. So again, you know, this isn't my specialty whatsoever, right? So, but we are lucky to be a part of this international community of geoscientists who are, who are luckily very friendly and giving. Um, and so I contacted Dr. Ellen Thomas at Yale University, and she had actually spent years turning these foraminifera into um, anatomically correct um, 3D print files. So from that, we outsourced to our digital media library on Upper Campus in Scott McAvoy, and he actually began to print these 3D microfossils, like this one here. Um, these are pretty cool. Um, and so, so we have these now mounted um, as well. So now we could finally have some kind of a specimen that could sit next to a jar with a fish or a squid or something <laughs> of, of that nature. <laughs> So my final slide here is to just, just show that this is the whole point. We really wanted to reach out to the general community and people of all ages. It's been really fun to come up here just during the day um, and see people of all ages engaging and reading and um, you know, there's a cosplay area and everything. So 
Um, and one final story to connect back to the GeoPass project is that one of the participants on that project, when she was here and got to see this exhibit, was so inspired. Um, her name is Eliza Cruz, and she's, uh, she actually is the entire science department at the Monarch School here in San Diego. She was so inspired that she figured out how to get her high school students here so they could come see the collections, they could come see the odd disease exhibit, and now they're engaging in actually creating a graphic novel so they can now communicate the science that they're learning in a really artistic way. So what's really cool tonight is to get to highlight how the collections kind of has fingers everywhere and then it all kind of comes back to education and supporting science. Um, so I want to thank you very much. I'm going to toss it back to, Dip, to Dick to wrap up and then we will um, be happy to take all of your questions. Thank you, Alex. Okay, so you've seen so far that we have our fingers into expeditionary science, into the serendipitous science through the library aspect of our collection, uh, and into various kinds of education, both education here of, uh, of high school students, of their teachers, and of course of university students, the general public, uh, and then of course things like this uh, through the aquarium. So a little bit about sort of how the science process works, okay? This is a picture of my father. He's the one with the rocks. Uh, and he is threatening to bean um, uh, Dick's rifle, who uh, was a herpetologist at the American Museum for all of his career. And Dick, of course, is about to blast my father uh, with his pistol. Um, but uh, this picture came to me in the family archives with this title, okay? Deciding Senior <laughs> Authorship. <laughs> and I detect that many of you have some idea what this means. <laughs> You know, in the scientific world, a senior author is the one who has conceived the idea of some sort, has put most of the effort probably into, uh, into doing the study, um, and is the person who wrote the first draft, at least, of the scientific paper. Uh, and I can uh, uh, vouch that I have never actually had to threaten my fellow author, uh, authors with either stones or guns <laughs> uh, in deciding this kind of thing. But I show this picture because actually, you know, the nature of science has changed quite a bit from the time, you know, back in the, in the late 40s and early 50s that uh, my father was getting into the field. Back in those days, it was very common for scientists to be sort of solitary figures in their white lab coat and their, their microscope and, you know, in the dark and stuff like that. Um, and as you've seen from what uh, Alex and I have tried to present today, that science is instead nowadays a very collaborative effort. Um, and that makes it just terrific fun. You know, it's, it's, it's not just the fact of going speeding around, you know, in the Belize Lagoon with a bunch of your friends. But of course, it's also this just wonderful effort of sort of bringing together material for teaching and research and broader education. And so... It's, uh, I feel very privileged, frankly, to be a curator and to work with somebody of such caliber as Alex, uh, as uh, our collections manager. Um, and we are happy to take your questions at this point. So, Alex. Well, first of all, thank you. And then secondly, as just a general public type of person, are the uh, collections behind the scenes ever open for tours or for non-academic visitors? Alex, take that one. Um, yeah.
That's a great question. Um, we're, we're kind of working on that now. We do, do a lot of educational type of tours. Um, sometimes we'll participate in um, events with the aquarium where we'll bring samples up. But uh, kind of in the next phase, I think, of reimagining um, what some of our spaces at Scripps are going to look like, we're trying to support um, kind of a visitor center that would be more of a static uh, visitor post for the collections. So right now we don't have um, normally open tours, but you can go to our um, our website and you can contact the collections managers there as well. So I should add to that also that we uh, regularly have tours of the collections for like the friends of the collections or uh, the uh, you know, various sorts of, of civic organizations associated with uh, scripts. Uh, and um, so if you'd like to come on one of those tours, you know, give us a give us a call. Hi, um, I hope this is quick. Dick, I'm sort of interested in the dredge collection. Oh. And um, what my question is, you know, the excitement when you first go out and then you collect your samples uh, and, you know, you start to do some work with it. But as time goes on, um, what happens to these types of things? Is the, the uh, memory of their provenance preserved? And do people, you know, come and open those boxes? Or what, what happens with time? <laughs> That's why the ark is still there, apparently. <laughs> uh, no, no, to be serious about it. You know, the, the material does have a, a second and third and fourth and fifth life. It goes on and on and on. I think... Um, well, for I'll give you an example. So back in the early 70s, there was a lot of interest uh, in manganese nodules, okay, from the bottom of the Pacific. And there was a big uh, U.S. program of, uh, of figuring out, mapping the distribution of manganese nodules. We thought we were running out of various kinds of metals that are present in these little sort of gray, sooty things. They look a lot like, like little pieces of uh, charcoal briquettes, if you ask me. Um, but anyway, so those, uh, those samples wound up in the Scripps collection, uh, and there they are now. Uh, but we keep on getting calls for that stuff. Uh, so we had, for example, a, a group from the U.S. Geological Survey that has been interested in manganese crusts and things like that. There's also groups from Japan who have been interested in mining red clay from the bottom of the ocean. Why would anyone want red clay? Um, but anyway, it turns out the reason why they were interested in red clay was because the Chinese were putting a clamp uh, on the mining of or on the export of rare earth minerals from China. Uh, and the Japanese noticed that there was a lot of rare earths in clay. And by gum, we have a whole garbage can full of red clay, <laughs> which we are forever handing out to people when they want some. <laughs> Do you have another story? Um, yeah, and just in general. So um, all of the information about all the samples is digitized after a two-year moratorium uh, period. So that's what happens. I mean, the second you think a sample isn't going to be used, you get a sample request for it. So that's what's constantly happening. So sample requests come in regularly, um, and it's based on other people's publications or just further findings. So, so that's why everything's preserved and then digitized. And there's an effort right now to re-image the entire core collection. I have a very brave um, student who is uh, starting to uh, uh, image 16,000 core halves, <laughs> I told her there's no goal for this project. So the idea is to have a digital presence. So even when the sample's gone, um, it's preserved digitally for its lifetime. So. Yeah, and, I, and actually, that Alex brings up a very good point, which is that by making things available through the web, this, this greatly enlarges the community of people who start asking you for stuff. 
Uh, it used to be that when publications came out, you'd get a whole lot of requests for the same material because, of course, those publications had added value. Now you knew how old the material was or you know, what its geochemistry was or something else that was useful for, for some other researcher. And that helped with the serendipitous science thing. Um, but now, through the web, we can show the world basically what we've got. And it's pretty impressive, I have to say. And on that note, <laughs> thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.